Um, if uh, I have not met you, my name is Chris, and I'm a member here at Trails Church, and I just want to thank the pastors for trusting me with uh, opening up the Word uh, this morning. And it's, it was great chatting with uh, Aaron as I was preparing this sermon, because uh, he was just so excited to be able to brag a bit on uh, members of Trails who are already doing such a wonderful job taking care of those in their family and those who are widows and uh, in need of provision and care. So that was really cool to get to chat with him about that even before that. Um, but while it is always a joy and a privilege to open up God's word to God's people, uh, there are certainly times when the preparation of a sermon comes easier than others. This is not one of those times. <laughs> um, preparing this message was not an easy task. Uh, and while I am grateful to preach today, I've not exactly been looking forward to it as I normally would. Because um, I have a feeling that I'm going to upset some people today. Uh, and yes, I fully understand that it is my, not my job to make people feel comfortable uh, when God's word is faithfully preached. However, that doesn't mean my flesh actively enjoys potentially making people upset with me. Um, but you may recall from Pastor Aaron's sermon last week that uh, it is the preacher's do- job to faithfully come to the family of God and say, this is what dad said. This is what dad has said. And since God has said it, We need to obey it regardless of how culturally or personally challenging it may be to us. Now, you may be wondering, Chris, you're preaching on caring for widows? What exactly is controversial about that at all? Uh, Well, that is because what is taught in this text actually has serious and far-reaching political and economic ramifications ramifications for our culture and society. Yes, talking about the care of widows is going to get political. Strap in, everybody. The other part of the challenge in preaching this text is that for most of us, 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16 is a pretty obscure text. Uh, These verses don't exactly make the Insta story very often. Uh, if ever, really. Uh, And since this is an often overlooked passage of scripture, that means there is quite a lot of work we have to do in familiarizing ourselves with what this text says. But this is an often overlooked passage about an often overlooked group of people. Yet still, it, it is so puzzling to me that we get so much of our understanding of our ecclesiology, that is, uh, our theology of the church, We get so much of our ecclesiology from 1 Timothy. And yet, and yet I have never read or heard of any book about about the church that talks about how the local church ought to care for its widows. And this shouldn't be a tangential topic that we can continue to overlook. You may be wondering even why Paul is talking about the issue of caring about widows at all. It might even strike you as particularly off topic, but that is, that is far from the truth as we will see. And even if you personally or us corporately may not have widows that are in need of care at this time, I believe that the implications of this text will be immediately relevant for us and will only increase in, the, in their relevance in the future. And here's why. This is our main point for today. Since the church is the household of God, then the family of God must care for its own. 
especially its often overlooked members. I'll say that again. Since the church is the household of God, then the family of God must care for its own, especially its often overlooked members. So before we get any further, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer to help us as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us alone to figure this whole life out ourselves. That by your spirit, you've written this book that gives us the words of life, the knowledge of our Savior, and that you've given us the spirit to guide us, convict us, and to teach us as we open your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what is in this text this morning, that people who are listening, that my brothers and sisters would receive what is said well, to understand the intentions that Paul has, and that our lives would look differently because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you may recall that Paul's main idea sentence for the letter of 1 Timothy is in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And I'll read that again. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the main purpose Paul has in writing to Timothy is to explain to him how one ought to behave in the household of God. And it is this idea of the church being the household of God that governs much of what is taught in this letter. And this idea of the church being a family is exactly where our text begins. So chapter five starts like this. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul's instructing Timothy and us that family relationships are the basis for how we ought to properly relate to one another in the church, God's family. Men, depending on their age, ought to be treated and loved as fathers or, or brothers. Women, depending on their age, ought to be treated and loved as mothers and sisters, and in such a way that is marked by purity. However, there is also a particular command given to Timothy about relating to older men, that he should not rebuke them, but instead encourage them. And this is particularly relevant as Timothy was likely dealing with older men who were teaching what is false and likely needed to be rebuked. However, Paul is concerned about what is proper, and it is not proper for a younger man to harshly rebuke someone who is older. And note, this doesn't contradict what Paul has just previously said in, to Timothy in the previous section, where he said in, in chapter four, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth. This means that just because people might dismiss or despise Timothy because he is young, that doesn't mean that Timothy should act older than he is. He should still give older men proper respect. But this command for Timothy should be recognized as a word of wisdom for all of us. We often think that a stern rebuke is maybe the only course of action when someone is in error. When we see a brother or sister in sin, we think it is our job to rebuke them. However, that is not the case. It is our job 
to point them to their sin and to call them to repentance. But that does not mean that it needs to look like a harsh correction. It might, but it doesn't need to. And it has been my experience that Paul's correction strategy works far better than my own. An encouraging word is far more effective than a stern rebuke. Now, of course, context and circumstance might be different, but as a general rule, encouraging a brother or sister towards righteousness rather than smacking them to turn away from sin is the better way. For example, sticking with this younger man, older man dynamic here, imagine for a second a hardened, brazen biker in his 60s started coming to trails. And even though he's been a Christian for some time, old habits die hard, and he still has the vocabulary of a man uh, from his old biker days. Now imagine if you, a younger man, heard him and told him, hey man, you shouldn't talk like that. Christians shouldn't talk like that. You'd be right, but I don't think it'd go particularly well for you. Instead, what if you said something like this? Hey, brother, I'm so grateful that God has brought you here. But as I've gotten to know you, I've, I've noticed that some of your language reflects your former life. And I just want to encourage you that as you grow in Christ, that your use of language would reflect your growth in holiness. That still isn't easy to say. And it still isn't easy to hear. But it's the kind of loving encouragement that would likely go a lot farther in the life of that biker than uh, a stern rebuke. But as we live together as a family and bristle up against one another, think about how you would want your family to relate to one another. The church is compared to many things in the New Testament. Just for example, it's compared to a building, a body, a bride. But the church is fundamentally a family. And as such, the family is our prototype, our blueprint for how we love one another. Now, in our discussion on 1 Timothy, my wife Annabelle pointed out to me a a likely all-too-common challenge for many of us. It is possible that your family background or history was not a very good example of how a family ought to relate to one another. Maybe you didn't really have much of a family to learn from in this area. And as a result, you don't know what is proper for how to relate to those in the church as fathers or brothers or mothers or sisters. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that. I really and truly am. And sadly, it is likely that the prevalence of this will only increase as the number of healthy families dwindles lower and lower in our culture. But if that is you, and you struggle to know how you ought to behave as a member of God's family, then it is my prayer that the family of the church would be another aspect of God's redemption in your life. That if you lacked a father, that within the church you would have many fathers. Or that if you lacked a mother, that within the church you would know the love of many mothers. And for those of you who did learn godliness from your families, then I would encourage you that you have a part to play in those 
in the lives of those who didn't. If you have the joy and blessing of having a godly father or mother, then you have the privilege of showing those who didn't what it looks like to be a parent who honors the Lord and teaches their children of Christ. This is such a beautiful part of the life of the church. We get to show those wounded by familial relationships the redemption that Jesus offers even in the brokenness of those relationships. And even if you didn't have a healthy Christian family, and, or even if you did, and, uh, and even then no family is perfect, even if you didn't have a healthy family, that doesn't mean you cannot still be an example of God's grace in spite of your less than ideal upbringing. One of the men I learned from most about what it means to be a Christian father uh, is a friend of mine, his name's Daniel. And when I told him how much I appreciated learning from him, just by watching how he loved his children, you know what he said to me? He said, that's crazy, because I didn't know my dad. That is Christ's redemptive power at work. That is a beautiful testimony of his grace to redeem even the most dreadful harm of broken family relationships. So it is in this framework that Paul situates our relationships to one another in the church. And it is within this framework of a family that we need to understand this following section all about widows. Because if we are to treat one another as a family, that means that for those in the church who don't have a biological family to care for them, the church ought to care for them. So let us read again, starting at verse three. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, first of all, let us be clear that this provision for widows is physical and financial provision. We are not, we're talking very practical here. This isn't just about like the provision of a community or providing spiritually or emotionally. And before we jump to the false conclusion that this is just biblical justification for social welfare, let us take a closer look at this text. First, notice that Paul commands Timothy to honor widows, to honor them. Providing for widows is not a matter of caring for those in a position of disgrace or even for those who we should pity. It is a matter of honor and respect. They are to be respected and honored and thus provided for as such. However, Paul makes a distinction between widows generally and those who are truly widows. That is those women who are truly left all alone and have no one to care for them. Instead, 
Paul's instruction is that a woman, when she has lost the provision and protection of her husband, ought to instead be cared for by her children or grandchildren. Paul calls this act a return to their parents, and that is pleasing in the sight of God. This is just right. It's what ought to be done. Son or daughter, take care of your mom. There's no need for some lengthy theological argument here. Your parents took sacrificial care of you, so you should take care of them sacrificially. That's just right. In many cultures, this kind of thing practically goes without saying. But for us, I think there is some specific relevance for us. Now, why, what might that be? Well, because in our culture, we have more or less outsourced the care of the elderly. We have outsourced it to the government, to care homes or other such institutions. And while the existence and use of these systems, it's not necessarily bad, they sh- but they should not be pointed to as our only evidence of caring for our parents in, the, in their old age. What do you mean I need to care for my mom? That's what the CPP is for. That should never be our attitude. And look even further to uh, verses seven and eight. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Good golly, that is a verse. <sighs> to, well, to quote from our honor, uh, honorable pastor Aaron Boswell, uh, his commentary on this text was, no godliness in providing for widows in your life equals you ain't godly, bub. <laughs> yeah, you did. All jokes aside, Paul is saying that it is so basic to human decency to provide for your own family that failing to do so is a demonstration of a lack of true, genuine faith in the gospel. And this is so since even unbelievers view this as essential to what is proper. And if Christians fail to provide for their own widows, it would seriously compromise their witness and bring reproach onto the church. And it would also be a compromise to the witness of the church if we failed to care for the true widows among us. Paul says that true widows are those who have been left with no one, no husband, no children or grandchildren to care for them. However, that is not the only distinguishing mark of a widow. A true widow is a woman who has set her hope on God and continuously goes to the Lord in prayer, trusting in him for provision. So a true widow is, someone, is a woman who trusts the Lord in contrast to a woman that here is called self-indulgent. Now this word translated here as self-indulgent can carry one of two senses. One is represented in this translation the idea of like living luxuriously or living beyond one's means. But it could also simply mean living in such a way that is outside of the bounds of what is appropriate or proper. So one Bible teacher suggests that Paul actually has this sense in view here. I am inclined to agree. 
You see, in the ancient world, there were no such protections for widows or others in vulnerable populations, such as orphans or foreigners. And so for women who had no means to provide for themselves, it was common for these women, driven by their desperation, to turn to prostitution. And while this is a tragic circumstance, Paul is possibly pointing to that as a way in which these widows, rather than trusting God for their provision, instead took matters into their own hands, resorting to what is not proper and sinful. Now, having made these distinctions, Paul moves on to instructing Timothy how the church ought to provide for these true widows. Look at verses nine and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation of good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So right off the bat, Paul, we see that Paul is actually listing qualifications of this kind of true widow that would be regularly supported in an official enrollment by the church. Uh, first, a true widow must be over 60 years old. And as we move on in the text, we will see what Paul has to say about younger widows. She also must have been the husband or the wife of one husband. Now, the way this phrase is worded mirrors the phrasing of the passages on elders and deacons back in chapter three, that they ought to be one woman men or here a one man woman. Because of that comparison, I'm inclined to take this passage uh, not to take this passage so literally as to say that a widow that was only married once can be supported by the church. Doubtless, a woman who was widowed, then remarried, and then widowed again could qualify for church support. The issue here is the same as it is regarding the qualifications of elders and deacons, that they must have been faithful to their spouse in their marital covenant. It's an issue of fidelity. So lastly, a true widow who may be supported by the church must also be known for her faithful service to the church, that she has a reputation for good works. Now, the list that follows is not meant to be a list of necessary qualifications, but examples of the kinds of good works that these widows ought to be known for. For example, if she had children, had she faithfully raised them? Again, I don't think Paul is suggesting that a woman who was unable to have children would be disallowed from being a widow supported by the church as long as she still had a reputation for good works in other ways. Nevertheless, what we see in this list represents a high standard of devotion and faithfulness in the life of a woman who would be officially supported by the church. And frankly, this is a serious controversy for our culture. Why is that? Well, because by putting forward these qualifications, Paul is saying that circumstance alone does not qualify someone to receive financial support. And this is in direct contradiction to what the broad opinion of it is in Canadian society, which says that just by virtue of one's circumstance entitles them to receive some kind of financial support but at least for how the church ought to operate, broad and unqualified support is not how the provision of widows ought to function. 
it is not the responsibility of the church to formally support any widow that may walk in the door. Now, some of you may be thinking, wow, Chris, really, that is harsh. Shouldn't we be caring for people? And to that I say, yeah, absolutely we should care for people. But here's the thing about this text. This passage is about the organization of a formal list of individuals enrolled to receive regular financial support from the church and how we ought to go about the selection of such people, specifically widows. This text is not in the same category of general Christian charity and giving. A local church support of their widows does not remove any other Christian command or obligation to generally have a concern and care for the needy. There's a lot of flexibility in how this ought to operate. You know what's interesting about what's missing in this text? Amount. There's no, like, this is how much they get. It's have you taken care of them by how much you're giving them. So there's flexibility in how this ought to operate, but it is a formal ministry of the church nonetheless. So in the preparation of this sermon, I ended up doing a ton of research on this topic. Good golly. Far more research than I have the ability to share in the context of one sermon, but it is relevant to share some aspects of how the church, the early church, that is, understood the application of this text to maybe shore up some of the questions we might have with it. Well, first of all, it was the understanding of the early church that caring for widows wasn't the only group of vulnerable people that ought to receive concerted care and attention by the local church. One document from the fourth century mentioned that it was the responsibility of the church leadership that as they have received provision from the Lord in the stewardship of that provision to also see to quote, the provision of widows, orphans, the friendless, and those tried with affliction. This was actually one of the first and main responsibilities of the deacons in the early church. And this only makes sense as the earliest example we have of the diaconal service in Acts 6 was the responsibility over the daily distribution given to the widows in Jerusalem. So then it only makes sense that in this letter where Paul has previously established the proper qualifications for the role of deacons, thus provides the primary example of the kind of formal ministry they are to be responsible for. But as I learned from the deacon book, which I would recommend to you, we are giving them away out in the lobby. So this is a plug, read it, especially chapter two. Director two is very helpful. Um, so if you just read chapter two, that's good. Um, read the whole thing. <laughs> I'm, it's not a pass. All right. Um, <laughs> um, the deacon's care of widows was not only just to true widows whose husbands had died. And you may be wondering, uh, how else does a woman become a widow? Well, think back to the kind of persecution that the early church endured. It was all too commonplace in that hostile culture in both Jewish and Gentile families for women who became Christians to be removed entirely from their families and left all alone. 
So it was from this circumstance in the early church that women who became separated from their husbands and children, not by their death, but by their dismissal and hatred of her because of her conversion, that the title of widow was expanded to include women left alone in this way. Besides, the proper application of this text was also understood not to certain degree, supersede a certain degree of reasonability. For example, in one early church exposition of this text, the author does present one situation. Not every true widow in the ancient world was left without means of provision. For example, uh, in the book of Acts, there was Lydia, the seller of uh, fine purple linens. Uh, she was likely either never married or widowed. And she was a wealthy woman that hosted the church of Philippi in her home for some time. One such widow as Lydia, who was more than able to provide for herself, did not need the support of the church. Instead, if there is a, a disabled man who is in genuine need of care, the, this early church author encouraged the churches to instead care for this man instead of the widow who could provide for herself. Thus, the proper application of this text was understood even early on in the church to include application for providing for other kinds of people, not only widows. But if this is the case, why is Paul only talking about widows? You may have been wondering that. You may not have been. It kind of strikes me as a bit odd. Like, when the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, references the needy, widows and orphans are almost always mentioned together. And often along with the sojourner or foreigner. So why are 16 verses in 1 Timothy devoted specifically to the topic of the support and care of widows? Well, let's take a look at the rest of our text today. So look with me at verses 11 through 16. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, having read this, I first want to point out the important sentence in this passage that actually informs us of its context. Verse, verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. This verse demonstrates to us that Paul here is actually addressing a very real problem currently going on in the church in Ephesus. It wasn't as if Paul was writing this letter and arbitrarily thought, oh, I almost forgot to tell Timothy about widows. Evidently, there had been an issue within the church in Ephesus of widows who had been receiving support from the church and were thus causing different problems. And there is a consistent reason as to why these problems ought to be avoided because of the witness and reputation of the local church to outsiders. This might be confusing to, or to some of you because so often today in Canada, we talk about how the church, the culture hates the church and hates the gospel and all that fun stuff. And that is true. Jesus warned us that we would be hated on his account and this is right and good. 
It is part of what it means to be a faithful Christian in a fallen world. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't be completely unconcerned with how the world sees Christians and views the church. Already in Timothy, Paul has said that Christians ought to live peaceable and quiet lives. And in the qualifications for elders, he said that they must be thought well of by outsiders. Because the reputation of the church matters, and thus the reputation of its leaders, those publicly representing it, also matters. So for this formal list of widows receiving provision from the church would have been a public demonstration of the care that Christians had for one another. And we see this as being the repeated reason for Paul's instruction in this section. Verse seven, command these things so that they may be without reproach. Then in verse 12, there is reference to women incurring condemnation. Then in verse 14, that there would be no occasion for slander. In a smaller local context in the ancient world, these widows' source of provision would have been known among the unbelievers in the community as coming from the local church. Therefore, much of Paul's instruction on the topic of formal enrollment of widows for support by the church is concerned with avoiding the damaging of the reputation of the church and protecting its witness. These widows ought to be faithful and known for good works because they are public examples. And so in the church of Ephesus, there were evidently different circumstances that did end up damaging the reputation of the church. So first, we see that Paul's reasoning for the formal enrollment of widows to be limited to those over 60 is due to the fact that younger widows would be open by their age to certain temptations. Their passions here uh, does not necessarily refer to sexual desire. However, it does include that but it could also refer to the desire to, to have children or simply the desire not to be alone. But Paul has in mind a particular situation where a woman actually turns away from Christ. You see, it isn't an easy thing to rely on God for your livelihood entirely, where you are trusting God that the church would be able to support you. It's not an easy thing. And so for a younger woman, especially likely having to be in that circumstance for longer, it would be a real temptation to go down an easier route. It would be far easier to abandon Christ and the church in order to marry a non-Christian man so that she can secure provision for herself. And verse 13 demonstrates that there had also been issues with younger widows who lacked certain degrees of maturity using their support by the church as an opportunity not that freed them up to serve the church, but as an opportunity to be idlers or gossips, thus causing division and stirring up trouble in the community. In both of these cases, Paul is concerned for how this reflects on the community of Christians overall. And instead, he encourages that it would be better for young widows to marry. The issue in verse 12 isn't about remarriage. It's about remarrying because of a lack of faith in God to provide and seeking a non-Christian husband instead. Paul encourages widows to remarry. Actually, in, verse, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 7, verses 8 and 9, Paul gives them the same instruction. 
To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thus, in order to avoid these potential occasions for slander, it is better that the younger widows married and raised children. And furthermore, in verse 16, the main idea and the principle for this text is restated. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And this goes back to the introductory principles taught in verses one one and two of this chapter. If believers have widows in their family, it is their divinely ordained responsibility to care for them. However, since the church is also a family, it is the responsibility of the family of God to care for its true widows as well. And this is an issue of our witness to the world. So back to our main idea, since the church is the household of God, then the family of God must care for its own, especially its often overlooked members. So as we have seen, Timothy is dealing with some serious problems as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. There is false teaching going on within the church where people are becoming obsessed and distracted by speculations and things that really aren't that important and other teachings which Paul refers to as the teaching of demons. We saw that in chapter four. And this is what I believe is behind the reference in chapter five, verse 15, that some widows in the church in Ephesus have already strayed after Satan. Some of these widows have followed after these teachings of demons and have taken part in spreading them around. So this concern for the care of widows is not just a physical concern for Christians, not just a concern for the church's witness, but also concern for the health of the church's doctrine. And so we see from the situations Paul cites in this passage, not only have these teachings become distractions and cause divisions within the church of Ephesus, it has actually led to some departing from the true gospel. And one of the ways that this has been is that, and it's it's significant and more important that the gospel has become supplanted by those teachings that have been deemed more essential for the church. And that was a very important lesson for us to learn. That something that may not seem that dangerous because it doesn't contradict the gospel is actually very dangerous when the church becomes so distracted by it that it becomes more significant than the gospel and supplants the focus and purpose of the church. And didn't we learn that, there is, that such is the case for many local churches in Canada today? Right? Well, there are many churches in Canada that have completely and outspokenly diverted from the biblical gospel. There are also many churches that maybe have not denied a biblical gospel, but something else has supplanted the priority of the gospel as the center of that church. And a church that is not centered on the gospel is a church that is in grave danger. And this diversion from the primacy of the gospel, that faith in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin is the only way we can live in right relationship with God, this diversion can occur and has occurred within churches of all kinds of different denominations and from all kinds of ideological backgrounds, whether liberal or conservative. It doesn't matter how you have deviated from the gospel. If the gospel is not the big E on your church's theological eye chart, then something is terribly, terribly wrong. 
And one of the major ways this has occurred in churches is an overemphasis on things related to the topic of social justice and cultural change. And this dialogue on social justice has led to many churches to view the correction of social ills to supplant the preaching of the gospel. However, we often think of this as mainly a liberal problem, that this preoccupation with addressing injustices in society is a liberal issue. This is not the case, as conservatives have the exact same problem but just utilize a different vocabulary. Instead of talking about social justice, some churches are very concerned about, quote, taking back the culture and are very content with waving their flag on waging the culture war and reasserting the cultural dominance of the Judeo-Christian worldview. But this attitude and emphasis in churches across Canada and the US can be just as devoid of the biblical gospel as those waving the flags of social justice. But because we may be more inclined to agree with the social and cultural opinion of those fighting the so-called culture war, we aren't quick, as quick to point out how this is just another example of a distraction that has supplanted the church's main aim to preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Because that is the mission of the church. Listen to me closely and carefully, brothers and sisters. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That is what the church exists to do to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call people of all nations to repentance and faith in him. That is our mission. And so regardless of our ideological or sociological preferences, we must not confuse the implications of the gospel with the gospel itself. I'll say that again. We cannot confuse the gospel with the implications of the gospel. That which ought to be the evidence of a transformed life from the gospel. We cannot confuse the gospel with the implications of the gospel. However, as it relates to this topic of social justice, I've witnessed a, in more conservative leading churches this trend of swinging the pendulum way too far in the other direction. We're in a reaction against the prevalence of social justice and so-called woke theology Individuals and churches have sung, swung way too far in the other direction, where now any time issues of injustice or social concern are brought up, there is strong reaction against it. This has gotten to the point where I've seen churches that when they have started a homeless ministry or advertised a clothing drive, they've had to fend off accusations of their church going woke. And that's, that's ridiculous. Just because a church wants to get involved with outreach to their neighborhood by caring for the physical needs of people or even certain groups of people, that doesn't mean that they've gone woke or that the gospel has moved from its primary place as the mission of that local church. We are commanded not only to preach the gospel, but also to be known for good works. What did Jesus teach his disciples? Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? Your good works. And then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our doing good works is an essential part of what it means for us to be lights in this world so that people may see our good works and then glorify God. 
Remember, the mission of the church is to make disciples. And recall, we must not confuse the gospel with the implications of the gospel. But here's the thing. If a person or church lacks the proper demonstration of the implications of the gospel, then we should question whether or not that person or church understands the gospel at all. Why? Because faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. The the faithful preaching of the gospel is what we should be doing and is what should be our primary mission. But it is not the only thing we should be doing or should be known for. So yes, unity in the church is not the gospel. Good works are not the gospel. Living according to biblical ethics is not the gospel. Racial or cultural reconciliation is not the gospel. Fighting to end abortion is not the gospel. Desiring the proper execution of justice in the court system is not the gospel. Changing what is taught in schools is not the gospel. Promoting a biblical view of sexuality and gender is not the gospel. Caring for the vulnerable and the poor is not the gospel. However, even though different groups have made these things out to be more important and more essential to the church than the gospel, we must not respond by ignoring them entirely since they are right implications of the gospel. And they demonstrate that we properly understand what the outcome of the gospel's work in our lives and hearts should be. And the reason I say all of this is because the proper application of this text hinges upon understanding this distinction. Paul here, by instructing Timothy on how to properly care for widows within the church, thus makes the concern and care for vulnerable individuals, specifically widows within the church, an essential part of what it means for how one ought to behave in the household of God. This isn't optional. This isn't optional. The church needs to understand that loving and caring for widows is a necessary command. And yet I have never seen a church where the proper application of this text seems to be a concern at all. The closest equivalent I think that churches might do uh, is, is something that would be called like benevolence funds or other things like it. Uh, which are for the care of specific physical needs of members within the church who may have a special need for some time. Or there are many churches that have a particular mercy ministry that they focus on, like a a soup kitchen or a food pantry. And these are good things. I'm glad those churches have these benevolence funds and mercy ministries. But caring for our own, for those within our local expression of the family of God, must be a priority of the church and especially those among us who are vulnerable and often overlooked. In his book called Caring for Widows, I have a quote to put up there, buddy. Um, Austin Walker tells us this. The way God's people treated the widow was to be a direct expression of their love for God and their ready obedience to him. Our care as a church for the orphan and the widow should concern us. Why? 
Well, for starters, in the Old Testament prophets, the failure of the nation of Israel to care for the orphan, the widow, and the poor was regularly pointed to as evidence of the people's idolatry and disobedience to God's law. Now look with me at Zechariah chapter 7, and look with me starting at verse 8. This was what Zechariah had to say to the Israelites that had returned from the exile about what had led to God's judgment of Israel in the exile. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the former prophet, hear the law of the words the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. This is a serious word about the continued failure of the people of Israel to live according to the law even after their return from exile. But this is also a New Testament concern. The apostle James teaches us similarly in chapter one, verse 27 of his letter, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as he will develop in expanding that faith without works is dead, here he says that proper evidence of true conversion is a concern for the affliction of orphans and widows and to live in purity. Now, I, I, one of my concerns in this is I don't want to come, off across, come across as harsh, brothers and sisters. I don't want to. But this should be an area of concern for us. You, know, may, you might be faithfully living this out in your family, caring for those within your family, and I commend you for it. But there is a concern for the corporate witness of the local church that I have here. And I will say, there ha I have been so encouraged to watch over the past year, many of the members of Trails faithfully and lovingly care for their families and to meet the needs of others within the church, not just in their family. It's been a joy to watch. It really has, and I want to commend you all where it has occurred because it has. I do not want to be accused of browbeating. Many of you have served very well. However, I do want to issue a warning here because there is a trend that I have become increasingly concerned with. And I cannot say it is new, for I doubt that it is, just as the confusion over the conflict of social justice isn't new, as in the early part of the last century, there was conflict over what was called then the social gospel. But from what I can tell, there is a symptom, a symptom that has crept into our thinking because of different social, political, and economic trends over the last several decades. I believe that this has led to an attitude towards generosity and charitable action that says, that's not our job. That's not our job. When a local community is faced with a need, the response of the church has, has often become, that's not our job. When a major injustice comes to the forefront in the culture, the church's response has, has become sometimes, that's, that's not for us to be concerned about. When a tragedy erupts in the nation, we say instead that we should just preach the gospel. Yes, we should preach 
the gospel and they should hear it from our lips when we are pulling them out of the rubble and cleaning the mud off their faces. If it's not our job, then whose is it? We've outsourced it. We don't need to care for orphans and widows because that has become the responsibility of the government and other organizations with charitable status. But one of the things that Aaron has reminded me of and pointed out to me, and we should remember, is that so many of these organizations and institutions, the hospitals and care homes and orphanages and all of the others like them, all over Canada, were started by Christians who cared about meeting the needs of the people in their community. Now, regardless of your views on economic theory and views on good governance, the fact that if a child's parents, if a child's parents were suddenly killed with no one left to care for them, and we don't need to worry that that child will starve and die, is an evidence of God's common grace at work in our society. That's crazy. But just because the government in Canada plays a more direct role in this area of society, that does not mean we are not responsible for the care, first of those within the church, and second, those in our community that need to know the love of Jesus and hear the gospel. Brothers and sisters, just because our culture has turned concern for social issues and charitable action into an ideological mess, and just because our political and social structures have institutionalized the care of vulnerable group, groups, that doesn't mean our response should be the complete abdication of our responsibility and privilege to love our neighbors and care for our communities. We must not abdicate our responsibility and privilege to care for the widows and orphans among us. They must not continue to be overlooked. And this passage actually gives us part of the answer of whose job it really is. There are different spheres of responsibility that are mentioned here in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. There is the sphere of individual responsibility to live righteously and to seek provision in the ways that are God-honoring. There is the sphere of familial responsibility where we are obligated to care and provide for those within our families and lastly, there is the sphere of the church's responsibility to care for those within the family of God who have genuine need and have demonstrated faithfulness to Christ. But within the church, within the sphere of the local church, there is a difference between the corporate formal responsibility of the church, like the formal enrollment of widows, and then the individual responsibility of the members of the church to care for one another, and to show hospitality and generosity to our neighbors who do not know Christ. All of these fears exist simultaneously and often in tension with one another. And you may be living well in some of these fears. So, but let us, let us not become unduly reliant on other spheres of responsibility and let us not become complicit in our lives within any of the spheres where we bear 
some degree of responsibility. I, I know we won't be perfect in this, right? Jesus is the only one who perfectly cared for and honored widows, including his own mother. When Jesus was suffering in agony on the cross, securing our salvation, what still did he do? He made sure his mom was going to be taken care of. In John 19, verses 26 and 27, while Jesus was on the cross, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Even as he was dying, even as salvation was being purchased for all of us, Jesus was concerned for the care of his widowed mother. And as his body, he has commanded us to care for widows and those in need among us as well. And this is not easy. And there are so many other factors and so many things that we, that we likely need to think through and look, seek to apply godly wisdom in how this might come up in our lives. But this is a matter of our witness and obedience to Christ. If you have widows or others who need care and provision in your family, honor them by caring for them. And if you are, keep doing it. I'm so glad you are. It is your duty to them as your, as your parents or grandparents. And if any of us come to a place of great need, especially if a woman in our church would actually become a true widow with no one to care for her, I pray and hope that Shrail's church would continue to faithfully step up and care for them. But these responsibilities do not stand in contradiction to our responsibility to love our neighbors in need and to show them what kind of love uniquely characterizes the family of God. It is our job to care and to love and to preach the gospel. This is a matter of what it means to live in the household of God. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so beautifully, by your son, demonstrated the, the tension of caring for the salvation of the sinner and the needs that they might have in this life. Lord, you are so gracious and kind to us as we have maybe allowed bitternesses and differences to creep into our hearts that are not the attitudes that, are, that the scriptures point us to have. And so, Lord, I pray that people, as they have considered these words, and as they consider them further and maybe discuss them in small groups this week, that they would see how you're at work, not only in our church, but in the world, to do amazing and beautiful things by the church worldwide. And that they might get to see, for maybe the first time, how they get to play a cool and unique part in that story. That we get to have the privilege of loving and caring for one another.
It's not easy, Lord, so give us grace, please, to do so. Give us grace, Lord. We thank you for how you've you've demonstrated your care for us. Help us to demonstrate that care for one another. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.